I always enjoy the Bible schools. Oh. Just to be able to give you a few things I learned, and then I hope you take those and learn some more things and are able to pass something even better along to the next generation, that's my dream. But I will give you what I've learned to the best of my ability. All right, be thou faithful unto death, and then we shall quote our Bible memory. <clears throat> and I'm still wrestling a little bit about writing them out on Friday, because I know that's going to take a lot of time. Uh, so we might not do that, I'm not sure, but don't, don't bank on it. We might. <laughs> okay, be thou faithful unto death. Let's sing it one verse, S-A-T-B, second verse, second time through, six parts. I'm really enjoying the singing here. I really am. Uh, Somebody said to me in one of the churches where I was, where people were sort of half-hearted with their singing, uh, sort of made an excuse. They said, well, let's suppose everybody sang like you sang. And I said, oh, I think that would be great. <laughs> Not that I had a beautiful voice, but with the, same, with the same commitment and energy. Don't be the faithful. Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of his Christ, according as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And besides this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue and to virtue knowledge and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness. Let goodness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. All right. Why don't we uh, go to the end of verse 10? Then that'll just leave verse 11 for Friday. Shall we bow our heads for prayer? Oh God, we thank you so much that you have put all of heaven's resources behind these little decisions we make. And you understand that those decisions are more significant than what we realize. And the tremendous uh, expression you can give to those decisions by the supernatural resources that you want to energize them by. And I just pray, Lord, help us to realize that in making our decisions, that they're not insignificant. They are opportunities for you to express all of heaven's power, wisdom, and glory. Bless us as we study. Help us, Lord, to learn some practical things about our decisions. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, just to simply uh, show the progression of thought here with Peter. I mean, we're not going to talk about the remarkable resources. We've already, the thing I want you to remember, the picture in your mind, is all of those resources of heaven made available to you. In all the little decisions of life, that's all behind you uh, to make those decisions successful if they're, if they're the right decisions. And then, of course, the reasonable response is to give all diligence to uh, actualize that, those resources by adding. <clears throat> it's a cooperative effort. God says the resources are there. It's like somebody paying for a university education, but you're not going to have any benefit from that education if you don't get down to work and allow those resources that have paid for the education 
to, to actually amount to something. So we, we have to add. And he says, give all diligence. This is, this is not going to be a lackadaisical approach. It's going to be an approach that uh, uh, involves a, a tremendous amount of application on our part to allow those resources to be actualized in our life. The realistic result, I don't know if I emphasize this quite as much as I'd like to, but he promises that we will be fruitful. I mean, you may not see all of that fruit, but it's a promise that if you do what we just described, you will be fruitful. That is a promise by God himself. You also will have direction in life. You will not be blind, completely absorbed with the circumstances around you, but you will see things afar off, and you will be able to aim toward that, and you will be able, at the end of your life, for it to be obvious that all of the choices you made in life lined up with something uh, Christ-likeness at the end and all that goes along with that. So you will have direction in life if you do what we just described. And not only that, you will have assurance. You will never fall. People ask me, do you believe in eternal security? And I say, well, I don't believe in eternal insecurity. I believe there is a security for the Christian. That if he does what we just described, he will never fall. God will see to it that he is kept by his power. And then you will be given an abundant entrance into the kingdom of heaven. I think here in this life, you will be uh, a, a wonderful, effective Christian citizen of the kingdom. And then at the end, he's promising us a tremendous welcome into that other kingdom. I mean, this is just a tremendous... Uh, aspect to be thinking about. And so then Peter gets to the burden of his message. Because he's going to, today we're going to talk about false prophets. And he said the important thing in life is to understand and appropriate the biblical, historical Christ. And there are two things involved. We talked about the one yesterday. And that is to believe that he is the divine son of God and that he resurrected from the dead. He's Lord of all and he has the authority over our lives. He is God. That's very important. But the other side, which we're going to look at now, is the humanity of Christ. It's interesting to me that most people, when they think about having a proper view of Christ, think about his divinity, and rightly so. They forget that the first threat to Christianity was not against his divinity, it was against his humanity. The Gnostics did not believe that he was fully human. They believed that it was all spiritual. The human part of it was just a fantasy, was just an illusion, that he wasn't really a human being. And that had tremendous consequences, like all ideas have. All ideas have consequences. Every one of them, every idea has a consequence. And the consequence of that was, we can't uh, really be like Jesus because he wasn't really like us. Now, the Anabaptists really understood that. And if you read their writings, and it perplexed me for years, they had this very peculiar emphasis on the humanity of Christ. Why are they always talking about this? And they understood that if Christ was not fully human, even though he was fully divine, if he didn't have that aspect of him, that he was at all points like as we are, then we could make exceptions. We could say, well, we can't be like him because he, was never, he wasn't like us. And they understood that. See, the, 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 uh, <laughs> the reformers did not focus on so much on Christ's likeness. They focused on biblicism. They focused on being scriptural. They focused on getting their theology right. And I want my theology right. Now, I want to be biblical, and I want to be all of that. But they did not really focus on discipleship. And I think it grew out of their faulty theology. In fact, if you talk to an evangelical today, and you really start to press this issue of following Jesus, obeying him, following his example, discipleship, if you press that hard enough, you will eventually hear them say something like this. But he was God. How many have ever had somebody answer you when you press the issue of discipleship like that? That's a denial of his humanity. 
That's saying Jesus would not like us. We cannot be like him because he was not fully human. And that's the first error that threatened the church, not the divinity. The Gnostics believed in his divinity. The first threat to the church was a, was a threat to his humanity. And I think that's still where the threat is today. The, the fundamentalist, the reformed theologians, the evangelicals exalt his divinity. Wonderful. Amen. I agree. But you're not going to hear much about his humanity. Because that then becomes practical. That means that you're committing yourself to his authentic example as a human who he has made it possible for us to be. I hope you're getting this. Now you understand why John, whose whole epistle is focused on these Gnostics, you understand why in chapter 4 he says, if somebody does not confess that Christ came in the flesh, he's an antichrist. That's how serious John saw this, this Gnostic heresy. With a denial of humanity. So I want to, you to leave today with it ringing in your ears that the humanity of Christ is just as important as his deity. They're both important, but it's just as important. And we probably have to put a little more emphasis on his humanity because everybody else is emphasizing the other to the exclusion of his humanity. We believe that we can be Christ-like because we believe he was like us <laughs> and that he conquered every aspect of human temptation and human failure. I tell the people who call me on the billboard, Jesus came for two reasons. Number one, he first of all, well, it's all the same, but he first of all, he came to show us the lost ideal of man. There he stood, the second Adam, the Adam that God intended from the beginning. There he stood showing us what Adam should have been and could have been. Everything a man should be. And then he knew there was something that kept that from happening. Selfishness. And if you don't remember anything else I said, there are many things that you're supposed to remember if you don't remember anything else I said. (laughs) That selfishness is an exact synonym for sin. That's what it is. If you want a practical definition for sin, in fact, the whole time Brother Mick is speaking up here, and I see that word self, just add ISH to it. And now you have the practical definition of sin. It's what it is. Anyway, so Jesus knew that we will never be like him until he deals with that problem. So that's why he died on the cross and resurrected, to deal with that problem. And if we will surrender to him and let him help us put ourselves on the cross and him on the throne, then we can be like him. (laughs) It's a restoration of the lost ideal for humanity. But see, the popular gospel says this is all about getting saved and getting your ticket to go to heaven. As if God started some project here on this earth and he's here to sort of take us out of that project and take us to another place. I don't read in the Bible much about people going to heaven. I do read in Revelation where it says there will be a new earth and the city of God will come down. And then it says, behold, the dwelling of God is with men. Not the dwelling of men is somewhere where God is, but God came down and finished this project. He always has intended to have an earth with human beings, and he's dwelling with them. And that's how the story ends. And so the Christian, the gospel is about getting heaven to earth more than it is about getting people to heaven. Now, it does talk about that, and I don't know how that all fits together. But, yeah, God is not going to abandon this project. He's going to complete it. And he wants us to show right now what it looks like for God to live among his people on this earth. It's about the kingdom of God here and now. And you know that's my favorite subject, and we don't want to beat a dead horse. So let's keep going. I'm trying to present the gospel to you as Jesus taught it. And as Jesus wants it to be realized on this earth. Now, so Peter says, if you're going to experience what we talked about in the first part of our messages, you have to get a proper concept of who Jesus is. And he says that God made it very clear. The transfiguration made it clear to them. 
The prophecies of the Old Testament, which he says are even more sure than that wonderful experience. And he says it's been confirmed that who Jesus really is. And you have to keep that in your heart in the right way. That he is divine, he has authority over your life, and he is human. You can be Christ-like. Those are the two truths that come out of Peter and especially 1 John. Now, we're moving on to chapter 2. But, so here we go. This Peter has, has geared up for this part of his epistle. He wants to show you the face of evil and how insidious it is. Okay? There's a state, there's a, uh, a Latin statement, caveat emptor, which means let the buyer beware. It's a principle in commerce. Let the buyer beware. There, the merchant is always, unless he's a very godly man, he's always tempted to somehow get you to buy the least for the most. <laughs> and so let the buyer beware. All right? Without a warranty, and that's why we have warranties, guarantees. Oh, I guarantee this is, this is right. This is good stuff. The buyer takes a risk. And Peter has given us a warranty for the truth in his uh, confirmation of who Jesus really was and that they were eyewitnesses. They say, he said, I, we didn't, this is not fables. This is not something we dreamed up like the Mormons or the Gnostics or, you know, would they dream up all this stuff that isn't true? He said, no, no, no. No, we, 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 we saw him. We saw his majesty. We touched him. We gazed upon him. We ate with him. We, I mean, the gospel writers go out of their way to say, we didn't do this in a corner. This wasn't some little secret now that we're coming out and trying to make you believe. No, 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 no. It was all done out in the open. There are witnesses here that can tell you that this is true. So Peter has given us a warranty for the truth of the gospel. But there is another gospel that is just as cleverly sold as any questionable merchandise is sold in this world. And Peter now reaches the burden of his message, these false teachers and what they represent. Now, I just told you earlier, and I want to repeat it, beliefs have consequences. Write that down. Beliefs have consequences. Socialism. Secular socialism. Now, the kingdom of God is an equitable society, and when I talk about that, people say, you must have voted for Bernie Sanders. Now, oh, wait a minute. In the kingdom of God, what I'm talking about is voluntary, of hearts that have been changed, and selfishness has been put on the cross. What he's talking about is a system where they force people to give their money from the rich to the poor, and that's an altogether different system. And selfishness is still there, and it will destroy that system, and it will turn into a nightmare. That's the difference between socialism and the kingdom of God, which somehow has some similarity. Did you know the communism, Marxism's motto was, from each according to his means, and to each according to his need? How many think that's a true statement? Come on, get your hands up. It came straight from the gospel. Marxism is a gospel heresy. It's the truth with a dash of damnable error put into it. Coercion rather than volunteerism energized by Jesus Christ. We're getting into all kinds of subjects here, aren't we? Uh, anyway, where was I going with this? Oh! <laughs> Beliefs have consequences. That Marxist error resulted in the deaths of at least 10 million people in the Soviet Union and China. Talk about Hitler. Hitler didn't do half the damnable damage that those, that philosophy did in those two countries. So anyway, another one. You folks don't remember this. How many were born before 1997? Okay. <laughs> All right. In 1997... The Hale-Bopp comet appeared. Now, it was very, you had to see it, get a microscope, uh, yeah, telescope and look at the right part of the sky to see it. It wasn't like Halley's Comet. Well, it was rumored that w there was a spaceship, there were aliens accompanying this comet. That was a rumor. 
that they, they looked at it and they said, we think there's uh, aliens. We think there's a, a, a spaceship there. We, we think there's something, some beings there. And so a man by the name of Marshall Applewhite developed a religion which he called Heaven's Gate. And he proposed the idea that if you committed suicide, you would go out to that spaceship and that spaceship would take you to a perfect planet. Now, I don't know how anybody in the world was ever convinced to believe that. (laughs) But 39 people did it. 39 people put a plastic bag over their head and died. Expecting to go out to that spaceship and be taken to a perfect planet. I, I, I give that, I give the illustration of Marxism, I give that illustration, and there could be many other, you could talk about Jim Jones. Ideas have consequences. We had better be sure that the ideas we have are from God. Otherwise, they will have some self mixed with them and it will be a disaster. Now, Peter had just pointed his hearers to the certainty of eternal truth. He said, we have a sure word of prophecy that's even more sure than my experience on the Mount of Transfiguration with the uh, transfigured Christ. And he said, the words of God are not private interpretation. And if you get them right, they will be a day star that arises in your heart. And you will have your own confirmation of who Jesus is and the truth of what he represents. But where there is truth, mark it down, error is one step behind. Where there is truth, you're going to find one error just pressing on the heels of that truth. The word error means a wondering. A wondering. That's what error is. It's not certain. It's a wondering. The word heresy means to make a choice. It originally had a good meaning. Paul says that we believe what they call heresy. We've made a choice that's different from what they think and that we're right and they're wrong. Anyway, that's what heresy is, but it has come to mean making a choice against the truth. And he calls them damnable heresies. All right? Destructive choices. Private interpretation. See, he warned us against private interpretations. I'm going to emphasize this again today. I check everything that I hear from gospel teachers against what I call historic Christianity. If I don't find it anywhere in history, I say that isn't true. That's somebody's private interpretation. I'm here to defend historic Christianity. Don't tell me anything I cannot find that has been the common understanding of Christians through the centuries, whether it's second work of grace, whether it's prosperity gospel, or any one of a number of things that people come up with that sounds so new and so novel and so wrong. Okay, I'll just add that. So no, no scripture is of private interpretation. Listen to your brethren. Look at history. Get the total perspective of the gospel. Don't run off with some idea that sounds right because belief have cons- beliefs have consequences. Now these people that he's going to warn us against are championing liberty over law. As if those two are opposites. Do you know that we as human beings are always creating these false dichotomies? A dichotomy is where you have two things that uh, seem opposite to each other. And I can go down through a lot. One, another, one of them is faith and works. To hear some people discuss that, you'd, you, you get the idea that you can have the one or the other, but you can't have both. That's a false dichotomy. And, and we could name a lot of them. The human being, for some reason, is always creating these false dichotomies where you have two things that do seem to contradict each other, and yet they actually are complements, if you understand them right. So these people are championing liberty over law. As if, if you have a disciplined way of life, you've lost your liberty. And if you have liberty, you won't have a bunch of external rules, as they would describe it. You either have liberty or you have legalism. And we all know this controversy. It's a false dichotomy. The fact is, this universe is a universe of law. There's the law of gravity. 
Does that inhibit anybody? Not really. Obey the law of gravity, and you can fly for thousands of miles, but that plane has to always remember to cooperate with the law of gravity. If you say, I'm going to break the law of gravity, and you jump out a 14-story window, you will break something, but it will not be the law of gravity. (laughs) So wise people say, there's a law of centrifugal force. I'm not going to go down this road 100 miles an hour, especially a road I don't know anything about, because if there is a 90-degree turn, I'm not going to be going around the turn. I'm going to be going straight ahead, and God forbid there be a tree there. You get my point? What most people do not realize is there also it is a, this is a universe of moral laws. But then this becomes a problem because the consequences of violating a moral law are not the same as the consequences of violating a natural law. If you violate a natural law, you get consequences just like that. But if you violate a moral law, eh, we call it God's mercy. He puts a space in there to help you get that rectified before it has the disastrous consequences. And because that space is in there, people presume. They presume there won't be any consequences. It's Jezebel looking at Jehu, who's come to kill her, and Jehu remembers Zimri, who killed his master, and seven days later he was assassinated. Jehu, you should think about that. What about you, Jezebel? What about Naboth? Oh, I'm the exception to the rule. See, sin is insanity. It always believes that we can violate a law that we know exists, but we're smart enough to get by. I remember a boy sitting in the office at Hartville Christian School where I was the principal, and he, I found out he was messing around with drugs. And he sat there with a sober face and told me, and he was an extremely intelligent boy, We had four minutes between classes, and he could always write his 150-word theme between the classes and have the best theme in the class. I mean, he was really probably the most brilliant student I ever taught. And he really did believe that he could mess with drugs and not get caught. Well, he got caught, and he has ruined his entire life. He's somewhere wandering around, has had a number of marriages, and has had alcohol and drug addictions, and has been in rehabs, and you name it. But I remember the day he sat in my office and honestly believed he could beat it. That's why sin is insanity. Okay? It believes you're the exception to the rule. And now we're off the subject here again. All right. So, I'd like to illustrate this. Here we have a pond. And they're little fish. I'm not an artist. That's why I don't draw many illustrations. All right, let's draw that little fish. We'll put an eye there. Okay. The eye's not quite at the right place, of course. And that little fish is swimming around. And he says, you know what? I keep bumping into the edges of this pond. And I just wish I had a larger perspective for my freedom. And so one day he gets near the edge and he gives himself a mighty flip. And he ends up outside. And now he's free. Really? What's the truth? He's not free, he's dead. That's not freedom. And that's a picture of what happens when you violate God's law. Within that law, there is freedom. Life is the way it's supposed to be. It maybe is a little bit smaller perspective than what you would like. Okay, that's what you think at least. And you say, well, if I could just get out from these restraints, then I would be free. And the Bible says that freedom is death. Don't ever forget that picture. That's probably one of the most powerful pictures. And it's not original with me. I saw somebody give it, not the boy. I have some ammunition now. All right. This bunch of false teachers... And you can tell a false teacher when they champion liberty over law. Write that down. A false teacher always champions liberty over law as if the two are opposites. That is false. That's a false dichotomy. The two complement each other very well. When you're functioning within the laws that God has created, you are at perfect liberty. And there is no liberty greater than that that you're ever going to discover. 
They forget that God is a moral being. That's what the word holy means. People say to me, well, God loves everybody, doesn't he? And I say, well, did you know there's some things God can't do? What? I thought God could do anything. God can't lie. He can't violate his character. He can't go back on his covenants. He can't take away your free will, which he has committed himself to. There's just a whole lot of things God can't do. Now, that might be a new thought to you, but it is true. God can be depended upon. When when he establishes something, he commits himself to that, and he will not violate it. In fact, he cannot violate it. It would be a violation of who he is. And so these people forget that God is a moral being. Be ye holy, for I am holy. There's where the freedom is, right there. That's, that's, be holy, for I am holy. There, just picture the boundaries of that. Okay? So a man who has dealings with God must be holy. We have it over and over in Scripture. Jesus said that the law would not pass until the whole universe passes. The moral law is wrapped up with the universe. And it won't be till the physical universe perishes that the moral law will, will be gone. Now, he's not talking about the Mosaic law. The Mosaic law was added because of transgression. He's talking about the original laws that were established at creation. Okay, And he says those laws are going to stand. You cannot violate them. He wasn't trying to in any way do away with them. So, well, we need to move on here because we have some things to talk about. Let's talk about the danger of false prophets. If I were to ask you, who, how would you describe a, the most dangerous individual in the world? Would you say a serial murderer? That's a pretty dangerous person. Do you know what the Bible says? Turn with me to Isaiah 9. Verses 13 to 16. For the people turneth not unto him that smiteth him, neither do they seek the Lord of hosts. I mean, he's trying to get their attention. Therefore, the Lord will cut off from Israel head and tail, branch and rush in one day. The ancient and honorable, he is the head. It's what Jesus said. The man who does my commandments will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And the prophet that teaches lies, he is the tail. Not the serial murderer. The person who is at the bottom of society, is the dregs of society, is the false prophet. Why? A serial murderer may kill a hundred people and every one of this is a horrible tragedy, unspeakable. I'm not minimizing that. But a person who teaches lies can lead to the destruction of a hundred million people. A false prophet is the most dangerous person in society. The false prophet is a pied piper leading multitudes to destruction, to damnable, destructive heresies. Jesus said, the man who breaks the least commandment shall be least in the kingdom of heaven. That means his total economy. Hear me. (laughs) I have spent my whole life trying to make sure that what I teach is true. And if there's anything false, I hope the people hear me forget it. But I think the, the gospel and the scriptures will bear out some of the conclusions I came to, and I'm, you, you, you correct me if I'm wrong, but we have some adults back here or some people to uh, make sure it's not a private interpretation. All right, what are the characteristics of false teachers that we have in the Old Testament? Well, the first one I list is they're more interested in popularity than in telling the truth. 
They tell people what they want to hear. I remember when the conference I was part of was drifting very obviously toward the world. And I had an uncle who was a pastor in that conference, and he had been a staunch conservative all his life, and all of a sudden he started to give a different message. And my father went to talk to him personally, and this is what he said. If I don't say what I'm saying now, I will lose my influence. That's what he said. If you look at the fruit of what he taught his own family and the church, it's a disaster. But he followed what he thought people wanted to hear so that he would have a place. Jeremiah says they'll tell you there's peace when there is no peace. Hananiah prophesied to Ahab that he would be destroyed in the battle. But there was another prophet. He said, oh, no, no, no. You're gonna, I mean, you're going to be stronger than the enemy. Anyway, so the first thing that is, is true of a false prophet is they're telling people what they want to hear rather than the truth. The second thing that's a characteristic of false prophets is they're interested in personal gain. The priests teach for hire and a prophet divines for money. Micah 3.11. People come to me through the years and they say, what do you think of these televangelists? And it just boggles my mind. There they were wearing their Rolodex wristwatches, bragging about their, their wealth, flaunting their extravagance, and preaching a prosperity gospel and saying, if you do what, I'm do, if you, if you do what I tell you, you can all have this too. And so they would ask me, what do you think? And I said, well, the Bible clearly says that if a person is trying to get your money, they're a false prophet. This is a red flag. Why don't you see it? Interested in personal, or maybe they're interested in their personal popularity or something. They're interested somehow in themselves. You don't see a cross in their experience. The Didache, one of the earliest Christian documents, says a prophet who asks for money or for a table to be spread in front of him is a false prophet. Prophets never ask for money. In fact, some of the teachers that I would have more respect for, they realized that they were very popular, and when they took up an offering, there was a huge offering. And so they decided not to take those offerings. They decided to put themselves under a a board or a committee who would pay them a salary and then disperse with the money in an honorable way. A false prophet wouldn't do that. In fact, I can tell you about a very prominent movement in the Mennonite church where there were I don't want to say too much or you'll identify who I'm talking about. But the nephew of one of those men, after it had had a disastrous experience, I'm trying to put this in general terms, said that the reason given for that disaster was not the reason. He said the reason was the one man was taking up offerings on nights that were unannounced And the other person said, I won't have anything to do with this because we announced when we're going to take our offerings and you're taking up an an unauthorized offering. And if you take up that offering, that's your your baby. And he said, many times I saw that man head for his house with two pillowcases full of money. And nobody knows where that money went. And God did not prosper that man or his ministry. And that's all I will say. Personal gain. A false prophet fleeces his flock. Okay? The Didache called them traffickers in Christ. They're using Christ for commerce. Or personal gain. When I think of the opposite of that, I think of dear old Lloyd Hartzler. Now you folks, a lot of you came from the Amish and other backgrounds. You did not know all the Mennonite leaders that I knew. Lloyd Hartzler held revival meetings all over the country. And he drove to those meetings in a car most people would not have driven to town. It was a little puddle jumper that had seen its day. And he was still driving it. And that's how he lived. That's it was his whole life. I worked with the man for two years in the same office. I went to his funeral. That's the only funeral I ever went to 
where every one of his children and every one of his grandchildren were exactly what he had taught. And I sat there and said, yes, here was a man who had given up self, truly, in every aspect of his life for the cause of Christ, and here's the result. And that's what I want. The third characteristic. They are dissolute in their personal lives. They are dissolute in their personal lives. They may not stoop to actual immorality, but you see there's no restraint in terms of the things they do to pleasure themselves. The priest, <clears throat> Isaiah 28, 7 and 8, the priest and the prophet have erred through strong drink. They are out of the way through strong drink. They err in vision. They stumble in judgment. For all their tables are full of vomit and filthiness. So there is not a clean place. That's the false prophet. They strengthen the hands of evildoers by their bad example. They are horrible examples of materialism, abuse of power, and competition with other leaders. They're dissolute in their personal lives. So we have three characteristics. They're more interested in popularity than they are in the truth. They're more interested in personal gain, and they are undisciplined. And the fourth one is they lead people further from God, not closer to him. If you look at their followers, they are more unlike God after they've followed that message. They're more and more focused on passion, possession, and position. This has not been given here, but John's, 1 John uh, chapter one, uh, 2, uh, verse 16 says, All that is in the world, here it is, here's the total catalog. Lust of the flesh, passion, that's the desires of the body that are out of control. Lust of the eye, to have the vehicle that makes a statement or a house that makes a statement or something, you know. Lust of the eye, that's possession. And pride of life, which is position. I want to be on top. No, the, John says that everything that's in the world fits under those categories. And you can quickly examine. Are you focused on passion? Is that under control? Are you focused on possession? You're doing things to catch people's attention with your things. And position. Do you want to be the greatest? And Jesus taught against all of those. And the last one, he said, the person who decides to be at the bottom will be at the top. I don't know why we can't learn that. And he, in fact, he promises us. He says, he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. There's a promise. Philippians chapter 1 talks about how Jesus stepped down, 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 down till the death and, and the death of the cross. That's as low as you can get. That was the most ignominious death you could die. He went from being God to that. And then it says, wherefore? Ah, because of that, God hath also exalted him. He that humbleth himself shall be exalted. He that exalts himself shall be abased. Somebody should have told Trump that a long time ago. <laughs> Please don't get real political here, but uh, I, that's a good example. I, was, it, I still smile when I think of it. And listen, I appreciate all the man did. And, and he was God's... The Bible says God sets up the basis of men to accomplish his purposes, so leave that for what it's worth. But I did think it was interesting in the first debate back during the primaries, when there were 13 up there, somebody, the last question was, what word would, each, I want each of you to give us one word you want to be remembered by. And Trump said, humble. <laughs> and I like to think that was what he really wanted. <laughs> Maybe he's not achieving it as well as he should. But anyway. Bless his heart. I love him. He's, he's our president. Okay. Peter's warning. The person of Christ presents men with an absolute choice. <clears throat> but men form private opinions about him and his words. That's what's going on. Men take his words and they have their own private interpretation and they rationalize and they say, well, you've got to read between the lines. He didn't really mean it's wrong to go to war. I mean, yeah, you know what? He didn't really mean it's wrong to swear oaths. I mean, that's ridiculous. He didn't really mean it's wrong to accumulate wealth. How are we going to live? He didn't really mean that it's wrong to, uh, uh, what's the one I missed? Anyway, he didn't really mean that. They have their private opinions. <clears throat> 
They are not the opponents of Christianity. Did you know that the, the, the greatest enemy of Christianity is not the people who are opposed to it? The word antichrist has two meanings. It means to be against Christ or instead of Christ. They put themselves in his stead. They, they, they call themselves Christians. The greatest enemy of Christianity is not, is not the atheists. It's the Christians. It's the Christians who came up with the idea that if you get your ticket to heaven, nobody can ever revoke it no matter what happens. The Christians, that wasn't atheists that came up with that. That was Christians. That's probably the most damnable heresy that anybody ever came up with, and it was people who called themselves Christians. <clears throat> no, they expressed great admiration for Christ. Those people probably defend his uh, divinity till the day he die, till the day they die, and they put their life on the line for his divinity. But then, the humanity part—they have all kinds of private opinions, which are damnable, destructive heresies. They speak in glowing terms about Christ. They stand on the stage with their Rolodex watches and their extravagance and all their craziness, and tell you how wonderful Christ is. Yeah, they're they're great Christians. They have elaborate theologies. They have wonderful seminars. They have dogmas that are very convincing. They're impressive. They're refined philosophers. They can speak things that are you know, really philosophical. But they deny his lordship. They will not acknowledge his absolute authority over every aspect of life. Their morals and values have no resemblance to what he taught and what he lived. They're focused on their luxuries, their pleasures, and their personal gain. They belittle respect for law and authority. We'll see that tomorrow. Christ bought us to save us from what I'm just describing. But heresy does not better us. It destroys us. It's interesting to me, we went to Poland in 1997, my wife and I. And we had the privilege of preaching in several Baptist churches. Now, the Baptist churches in Poland and uh, the Eastern European countries and even in the Soviet Union is not the same as the Baptist here. And they know that. And so I was asked to preach in one of those churches. And so they invited us for supper. The pastor invited us for supper. And we were sitting there having a wonderful supper. Of course, we had to have a translator. I didn't understand Polish. And after a bit, in came this group of men. And they sat down around us. And they were very friendly, and they asked all kinds of questions. It wasn't until after they were done with their questions that I realized they were checking me out. They asked what I believed about women's place in the church. They asked what I believed about speaking in tongues. They asked what I believed about the prosperity gospel. They went right down the list. They knew there was something wrong with Christianity in America, and they didn't want any of that taught in their church. Christians in former communist countries are wise to the American gospel. They know there's something wrong. And by the way, I did not know until I made that trip that most of the Christians in Eastern Europe and Russia were non-resistant. Did you know that? I thought that was something that you know, Mennonites hang on to and everybody else is discarded. The underground church in Russia was non-resistant. They have never lost that. Okay. Four things about false teachers and their teaching. <clears throat> what is the cause of false teaching? We see it in verse 3. Verse 3 of 2 Peter says, And through covetousness shall they with feigned words make merchandise of you. The cause of false teaching is covetousness. It's evil at personal ambition, money, prestige, power. To have their own little group of followers. To be on a pinnacle from which they can judge everybody else. I've said already of these churches and say they're the only church. I'd like to get a representative of every one of them that everybody in their church respects and would abide by their decision. And I'd like to put all of them, and there would be about uh, probably a hundred of them, in the same room and say, now you guys may have bread and water until you decide which one it is. Now, my prediction is they'd all die in that room. That's one of the causes of false teaching, to have your little pinnacle from which you judge everybody else. All right? <clears throat> Number two, their cause is false teaching. 
I mean, the cause of false teaching is ambition, evil ambition, covetousness, selfishness, prestige, you name it. Anything that has to do with self is the cause. <clears throat> Number two, the method of false teaching is in verse three. Feigned words. That means cunningly forged arguments that sound convincing. And they will use scripture. They will find scriptures. They'll cherry pick scriptures. That's why I'm a great, have a great suspicion for systematic theology. Now we all have a theology. It's what we believe about God. But this thing of saying, I'm going to prove this to you. So you choose a verse here and you choose a verse here and you choose a verse. I, I have a deep suspicion of that approach to the Bible. I, I think the Anabaptists went straight to the Gospels and said, this is what Jesus taught. They didn't go cherry-picking verses to prove some point about something. <clears throat> Their method is feigned words, counterfeit tales, lying miracles. I had a friend who had been part of the charismatic movement at one time, and uh, I'm not going to give a name, but he said there was, and he named the person, I knew the person. In fact, the person that he named was an excellent Bible expositor. If you ever heard one of his sermons, he could, he could exposit scripture in a way that was right. But he was a charismatic. And he said he came to preach in our church, and halfway through the sermon, he said, God has all of a sudden given me the ability to lengthen legs. So those of you who have one leg shorter than another, line up and we'll do it right here. And so they would come up, and he'd take off their shoes. And, well, you can easily make one leg look shorter than another. And then he'd pray, and then he'd say, yeah, okay, now they're okay. So they would go marching back. He said, at the end of the service, this man got up in the back that had a shoe that was built up three inches. And he came hobbling down the aisle. He said, I looked in his face, and I saw the panic. This man really did need a miracle. He said, he didn't have any choice. He sat him down, took off his shoes. Yes, he didn't have to do anything. It was, <laughs> he prayed, and it was still the same. And then he lamely said, Brother, this is going to take some time. Don't lose your faith. Keep trusting the miracle. And the man put on his shoe and hobbled back the aisle, sat down. That's the kind of carrying on that people do. David Brousseau says in some of those healing services... Almost all the old people that are limping a little, you know, a little bit infirm, they offer them a wheelchair. Well, of course, we will wheel you up and, you know, you won't have to walk up and limp up the aisle. And then when they do the healing service, they go to those people and they pray this prayer. Now stand up and walk. And they stand up and walk. Well, they walked when they came into the meeting. So, And there are people who believe that garbage. Counterfeit miracles. Fabulous legends, clever theologies. They're stealthy, chapter one. They privily, they are deliberately being secretive and stealthy about what they're really after. They imperceptibly lead people away from the simplicity in Christ. Second Corinthians chapter 11, verse three, somehow mark that scripture down. Paul says, I fear... As the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, you will be led away from the simplicity that is in Christ. That's a very important verse. Paul saw it coming. He saw the sophisticated theologies and deceptive teachings that would be very convincing. And all you have to do is compare it with Jesus and his example. And Jesus and his teaching. And it doesn't match. And Paul said, my fear, Paul's greatest fear for the church in that passage, is that people would be led away from the simple example and teaching of Jesus. That's why you hear me talk so much about that. That's why you hear me say, I'm a little bit scared of people who are trying to be scriptural. Now, I want to be scriptural. Don't misunderstand me. People who are listening to my CD. I want to get this straight. But if you're focused on Jesus and you're making every scripture line up with his teaching example, you will be scriptural. But if you go cherry picking verses to try to be scriptural and you're not comparing it with Jesus, you may come up with something very convincing that you call scriptural that is not Christ-like. And that's the thing that I'm the most fearful of. People who cleverly arrange scriptures and manipulate and put into systems of theological thought 
that don't line up with Jesus. He is our standard. The Anabaptists said, and I'm going to quote now, no interpretation of Scripture is the proper interpretation if it violates anything Jesus ever said or did. That's a safe principle to go by. And you can put in all of this, the Roman Catholic Mass, two levels of Christian experience. If you really want to follow Jesus, go to the monastery. Otherwise, we have a penance system that will get you through to heaven. And if you go to the Sistine Chapel in Rome, which I did, it shows uh, one of the angels pulling people up to heaven with the rosary. I looked at it and thought, how in the world would anybody ever come up with that? Although that group has done much good, they're opposed to divorce and remarriage. They believe it's wrong to limit families. They believe in large families. They were the, probably the greatest uh, opponents of atheistic communism. They probably helped to bring communism down in Eastern Europe. I mean, this church has done a lot of good, but it has this error mixed with it. Okay? It's not Christ-like. The, 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 the uh, critique you should bring to everything you hear and everything you think is this Christ-like. That's the whole point. Okay? Christ is the only benchmark of truth. And we need an inerrant scripture. I'll put this on the record, because this is all we know about Jesus. And we have to believe that this is inerrant. So I'm not disagreeing with people who are focused on getting a proper view of the Bible. Absolutely. We won't get a proper view of Christ without a proper view of the Bible. But having said that, then let's not get stuck with the scriptures. Let's make sure that we let them reveal Christ to us and he becomes the standard then by which we judge everything. Okay. I don't know if I'm being understood. But it's all very clear to me, as everything usually is. <laughs> Number three. We had the cause of false teaching, which is covetous, evil, ambition. We had the method of false teaching, which is feigned words. And what's the effect of false teaching? It causes many to follow an undisciplined way. Pernicious is the Greek word anselgia, which means reckless. No restraint, excess, wantonness, indecency, hardening process. Many shall follow their pernicious way. I just told you what that word means. The way of truth is reality. Truth, by the way, the synonym for truth is reality. The way of truth, the way of reality, is evil spoken of. All right. They call the freedom in Christ bondage. By the way, if you look at my hymnal, often at the top of the page you'll have their subjects and you'll see this, the word salvation. I wanted to make sure people understood what that word means. So you'll find that the heading in my hymnal says salvation from sin. That's the freedom we're talking about. <clears throat> freedom in Christ is called bondage. Respect for law is called legalism. Let me tell you something. To obey Jesus is not legalism. Just get that through your head. To obey Jesus is not legalism. Now, I will describe legalism to you so you know what legalism is. Legalism is you have a list of things that is your moral code. And maybe everything on that list is perfectly wonderful. I don't smoke. I don't drink. I don't uh, associate with the people who do. I, you know, It's a wonderful list. Maybe constructed by good parents who got it from the example of Christ. Or the church that got it from the example of Christ. But all you have is the list. You don't have Christ. You just have the list. And so every time you make a decision, you refer to your list rather than to Jesus. Am I making any sense? In fact, Jesus can't even tell you anything that's not on that list. If he tried to tell you something he wanted to tell you that wasn't on your list, you'd never hear it. Because you're focused on your list. And it's a good list. It's the list that all moral people follow. But they follow it in relation to listening to Jesus. How many understand what I just said? That is legalism. If you're referencing everything to Christ, and you have a list, and that list is open to more revelation from Christ, and everything is constantly referred to Christ, that is not legalism. (laughs) That's this. Please, hear me. I'm so sick and tired of the word legalism, I wish we could take it out of the dictionary. 
The effect of false teaching is it turns people from the way of freedom to bondage. We're going to see that tomorrow. The end of false teaching. The Old Testament sentence for a false teacher was death. There's the most dangerous person. Get rid of him. Don't let him have any influence. I'm reminded of the story called The Flying Machine. This isn't a spiritual story. This is a, a story told by, oh, who was the writer? Of some Chinese emperor who some man came running to him and said, hey, we have a flying machine. There it goes. Isn't that wonderful? And the Chinese emperor said, when that man lands, you bring him to me. We're going to put him to death. Well, why? He's doing a wonderful thing. He said, that man might find a way to take stones up in that and drop it on things and destroy them. Which, of course, he was talking about the atomic bomb later on. But most people don't understand that. That people that have dangerous ideas are the most dangerous people. The sentence may seem to be asleep. It may not be happening right away. God's giving mercy. But no false teacher can escape the judgment of God. The result will always be destruction. Always. The doom of false prophets. We're done. We'll do that tomorrow. And let's see, what are we talking about tomorrow? Bad character tells. All right. Shall we pray? Father, I thank you so much for the clarity of the Bible. Father, forgive us for making things vague and obscure and confusing. It's just that simple. Truth is Jesus. What he taught, what he did. Help us, Lord, never to lose that focus in all our thinking and all our doing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.